Welcome to the Parenting Well podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I am Dr. Shelley Mann, your host. And today you are listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising healthy, happy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information, tools, and strategies. So let's fill that well. Today's well source is Trina Fates, who is going to share with us the challenges young people face when it comes to substances in today's world, as well as how a cutting-edge program called CRAFT is helping parents navigate these rocky waters. Thank you so much for being with us here today. My pleasure, Shelley. Thanks for having me. So let me tell you a little bit about Trina. Trina is an advocate for child welfare and family wholeness. Having been a volunteer school representative for our organization, the Parent Engagement Network, for nine years, and on the board of directors for Voices for Children, CASA, for 13 years, she now serves on the board of directors for Natural Highs and is well-versed in the struggles and challenges facing youth and parents today. Three years ago, two of her close friends lost a child to an overdose, and Trina learned that her daughter with chronic Lyme disease also struggled with substance and opioid use disorder. Having navigated this system herself, treatment options, and intervention services, she and her daughter slowly created their own treatment module and recreated their family's relationships and trust. Trina went on to get certified as a peer recovery coach to work with parents and teens struggling with the challenges of substance use. Now, as a facilitator of the Boulder County Substance Advisory Group and leader of Young People in Recovery Panels, she brings a personal and humane approach to intervention and hope. So I've shared with you a little bit about how Trina got involved in this work. Um, Trina, can you share with us how these experiences have really shaped such a large part of your career? Sure, Shelley. I think, one, when you come from a personal experience that uh, involves struggle and challenge and a lot of fear and the unknown, you are left with very few options. Uh, some of those options are to hide and isolate and fall into a dark place, um, one of which I did, and I think most parents do when they find out their child's in trouble and spiraling downhill. Another place is to seek support and help, whether it's through uh, a friend a spouse, individual therapy, or a group such as Al-Anon or Naranon or um, some type of substance use support group. And a third is um, to speak out and try to connect with people openly and without any shame. I fell into all three of those categories at different times in uh, my stage of recovery while my daughter was suffering and then while she was in her recovery and found that the best one of those stages were the last two, but especially for me, the one where I became an advocate and tried to erase the stigma and shame uh, around substance use disorder and what so many people are going through right now in our community and throughout our country. Uh, this is an epidemic, and we have to stop feeling isolated and ashamed when our children are suffering or when other loved ones in our relationships and in our sphere of um, contacts are suffering. 
I think the greatest reward out of all of this has been watching my daughter heal and our family heal and being able to perform this work together with her in almost a partnership as she has become um, a certified addiction counselor and a peer recovery coach, and I have done the same and work now with Kraft. Seeing us rise above this and help others has been the greatest reward of all. Boy, Trina, I think you are speaking right to the heart of what parents are afraid of um, and then having having been faced with having to deal with the very thing that a lot of parents worry about, which is that their son or their daughter is going to use a substance and worse, become addicted or put their life in danger with that substance. Um, and so I think that, you know, sharing the ways that you coped with that and the things that were helpful in your journey um, can support parents in feeling like they they don't have to deal with this by themselves and they're not the only ones that have this going on in their life. Um, when you- yes, no, I, I agree. And I think that's, I think that's the biggest um, well-kept secret, especially in, in, in communities where people are very connected through schools or volunteer work or, or programs. We see each other um, from the outside and we want to protect anything that looks negative or derogatory about what's going on. So we, we present a facade. And when people actually start talking and sharing beneath the surface of that facade, we see how much so many of us are struggling and how many of us are on this common ground of trying to keep our children um, breathing above water. And it's a really scary place to be. And to do it alone is, is extremely um, frightening and mm-hmm. can lead to a lot of your own um, depression and, and fear. And when you're in that situation as a parent and you're dealing with something, your struggles are relative to what you've what your experiences have been. And so what I hear you saying that is so powerful is that in community we can share our experiences and not be judgmental and not hold parents to some kind of a standard that they're supposed to do this perfect. Um, and that somehow if something goes wrong, there's something wrong with you. And I and I think parents I think parents can benefit from understanding that there's no way to be a perfect parent and that people really want to be there to support and help you. Among these challenges, what do you think the biggest challenges are for kids who are literally growing up in a world where substances are pervasive, um, with alcohol and vaping, um, legalizing marijuana? What are the challenges that our young people are facing today? You know, I think I think they face similar challenges that they did when we were young um, in the sense that um, society really condones uh, uh, the use of drugs and alcohol, and it has for many years. Um, We now have social media, which really enhances that um, support of the use of substances. We have Netflix and movies that are constantly showing young people and older people um, using and abusing substances. Uh, But we also have other options through social media to show uh, the positive effects of of not abusing substances and also the negative consequences of abusing them. I think one of the biggest challenges affecting our youth today are the, uh, the 
the quality and the lethal characteristics of substances that are available. With the opioid epidemic, we're seeing numbers of overdose deaths that exceed uh, causes of death of any other kind for people 50 and younger. Um, we see fentanyl everywhere now. Um, it's been, uh, cocaine has been tinted with fentanyl. Marijuana has been tinted with fentanyl. We're seeing overdoses in um, groups of young people when their drugs have been contaminated. But we also are seeing a huge number of young people become addicted to uh, medications, pharmaceutical medications, such as benzodiazepines, which are um, Xanax and clomazepam and Ativan and lorazepam. These are widely prescribed for anxiety, but we see kids um, exchanging them, buying them from each other, and becoming highly addicted. And these are very dangerous medications because on a long-term basis, they change the chemistry of the brain, especially in a young brain. And the longer they're used, the more difficult it is to ever get off of them. Um, we see very dire results with adults with long-term use of Xanax and other benzodiazepines. So we have a myriad of substances here that, that kids are actually being bombarded with. And they're not educated enough, and they're not really, their brains aren't developed enough to know what is good and what is not good. Their brain just knows this feels great. And so if it feels great, let's let's do it again and let's do it again. Um, I guess to me the biggest challenge is trying to educate young people so they understand what's going on with their neuropathways, with their neurotransmitters, within their brains so that they have a better chance of making choices for themselves that end up being good and healthy ones and they don't fall into uh, the, the pitfall of addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, as we talk about the prevalence of substances and the wide acceptance of use over time, as you said, um, parents will hear things like kids will be kids or all kids experiment at some level with drugs and alcohol, or even if they don't experiment in my home, then I'm afraid they'll go to college and they'll drink too much and, and potentially get hurt that way, and they're just going to be ill-prepared to handle the realities of the world. Uh, how would you respond to something like that? What a great question, Shelley. You know, really, I would respond twofold. First, yes, it's absolutely true that your kids are probably going to experiment and try things at some point. So the more you're talking about it, the more conversations you're having, the more open communication around if you drink too much and you experience alcohol poisoning, you may pass out um, and choke. You know, there, there's so many different consequences from, from, diff from using different substances. Your opportunity as a parent is to start those conversations and start talking about them as, as early as you so choose. And I think the earlier the better. Um, you can talk about opioids. Opioids are prescribed in the dentist's office. They're prescribed in the surgeon's office. Sometimes they're prescribed in a doctor's office, hopefully no more. But you have an opportunity um, when your child is still living at home to have those conversations so that they're better prepared and equipped when they go off to college or when they're living on their own or, or even when they're at a high school party because those substances are very readily available um, in high school. We have this wonderful presentation that we do in the classrooms 
with some of our people in recovery. And I started off with a chart that actually the CU Collegiate Recovery Program um, shared with us originally. And it shows how over the course of um, our lives, most people do experiment with substances. And out of everyone who chooses to experiment or not, 30% of the population remains sober. Now, that doesn't mean that they were always sober and stayed sober. It means that some people choose to become sober, choose to um, never engage in use after they've experimented. But 30% of the population is, um, is, lives in sobriety. And that's a huge segment of the population, but we never talk about that. We never advertise that. We never see it in movies or social media. And when we tell the kids that, they're pretty blown away. Um, because that's a choice. That's not being told you have to be sober. It's, it's a choice, and it shows that it isn't so bad. Uh, then we look at the other stages of experimental and long-term use, and we see that about 20% of people who experiment with drugs are able to, and, and alcohol are able to live in that um, safe zone, where they can use moderately, they don't have any issue with it, they never have, they never will. Maybe it's a once-a-week thing, maybe it's a once-a-month thing, but they just kind of stay safe in that, that, that little um, area. Then we have a larger population, about 35%, who experiment, and as they are using and, and trying out different substances or, or continuing to use alcohol or THC, they begin to increase their use and start to use it as a coping mechanism. The coping mechanism might be temporary. It might be due to a relationship that broke down. It might be due to high stress that's going on in their lives. It might be due to their parents fighting or a divorce or a move. But they start using it as a coping mechanism. And as they learn to use those substances as a coping mechanism, it becomes part of their neuropathways. And it becomes something that they start to turn to. So it's very important that we can help kids become aware that the use of substances for coping really backfires on them down the road, and it also can lead to really addictive long-term behaviors. They may not understand that or know exactly what that means or be able to look at it long-term because they're much more in the present than we are, but for them to realize that coping this way is actually probably going to backfire helps them to realize and start looking at their own behaviors and go, hmm, maybe this is what I'm doing, or maybe this is what my best friend is doing. And very often they can pick it out in their friends even better than they can pick it out in themselves. And we see so many teens who are really concerned about friends of theirs and really want to help them and they don't know what to do. Another um, category of use is when you go into what we call the orange stage. And the orange stage is the danger zone. And that's where you're using regularly, you're coping with substances regularly, and you could die in that, um, in that category because there's so much fentanyl and there are so many drugs that when interacting with each other or interacting with alcohol can cause an overdose effect. So we warn kids that it's very easy to get into the orange zone and that's a high alert zone. From orange, you easily fall into red. Red is the very last zone, and that is the zone of full-stage addiction. And as we let the kids know, when you're in the red zone, you have to have help. 
99.9% .9 of people who are in the red zone cannot get out by themselves. And that's because this is a disorder of the brain. It's a disorder of the neurotransmitters. And you need support, you need treatment, you need help. So the object is to catch this before you get into the orange or when you're in the orange zone so that you can reverse this and work on healthier ways of coping, healthier ways of dealing with the issues that are going on, be they depression, be they um, uh, anxiety or stress. There are much better ways of coping, and we want to help kids realize that and see that before they're in the orange and then the red. So if, I, if I'm doing the math right, um, what it sounds like is that the, the percentage of people in the population that fall into that red, orange or red zone is really in the teens. Um, so there are lots of young people who either don't use, use and have control over it, or we catch them at that special kind of sweet zone where we can work with them to figure out how to cope with the things that they're challenged with that could be causing use. Absolutely. Um, it's important to remember that those, those percentages and numbers I'm speaking of are for the whole population. They're not just for our teenage population or young adult population. And when you mentioned that they're in the teens, I think you meant like 15% of the people um, have uh, are in the red zone with full-on addiction. And it's actually less than that. But um, you're absolutely right, Shelley. Uh, you know, some people, especially with something like opioids or benzodiazepines, can become addicted very, very quickly. Uh, that's why there's such a high danger alert with them, because overdose death can occur, you know, within minutes. With alcohol, we have a much longer term of use before full-on addiction actually occurs. So, you know, there's a variable there. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. And... Um, that is accelerated by the fact that their brain is developing so that the time frame for a young person to become addicted happens quicker than it does for a fully developed brain. Absolutely. And we also see that the younger um, a person starts using, if someone starts around 13, 14, 15, their chances of becoming having substance use disorder um, slash addiction is much higher than if they start using at 17, 18, 19, or if they start using at the recommended ages of, you know, 21 or older. So the younger you start, the uh, earlier you're building those neuropathways, which then recognize use as something that the brain wants, not necessarily that the brain needs or is healthy for the brain. Mm -hmm. um, so since our listeners are parents and drug and alcohol use is, is often a major concern, one of the things we hear at Parent Engagement a lot is having the information is helpful, and especially if they can then use that information to teach their children about things like brain, brain science and use and addiction, um, substance use disorder. Um, but the thing that we usually hear is, what do I do with that? Like, how do I, how do I know if my child's use is is out of control, how do I respond to them, what do I say to them, um, where can a parent start? Uh, it's, a, it's, it's tricky. It's, you know, it's such a difficult time in, in a young person's life, adolescence. There's so much going on hormonally, socially, 
um, educationally, academically, and our kids are changing. So sometimes it's really hard, even when you're really close with your kids, to actually understand what's going on. And that's that's probably the most puzzling and difficult part of all of this. Um, I highly recommend going to one of Avani Dilger's presentations and bringing your teenagers with you and your middle schoolers because the foundation of education is understanding, a brain education is understanding what's going on when you introduce substances to the brain. And she puts it in such a way that it is so interactive that kids are they're alert, they're listening. Even if they're acting like they're not, we get feedback from parents that the next day or two they start talking about it. And they were sitting in the presentation yawning and looking at the ceiling, and two days later they're actually asking questions and talking about it. So we know that her presentations are extremely impactful. Um, I think the biggest signals to watch for are um, isolation and withdrawing, um, closing oneself up in one's room, uh, having less motivation for anything, including um, their sports or their uh, academics or their social life. Uh, as many parents are realizing, if video addiction is going on in their homes, their their kids are on their computers 24-7. That's a warning sign of video addiction. With substances, it's more um, a, with, a withdrawing and an isolating. Or it's hanging out with kids that um, they're using with, and that is something that you just have to try to identify by the, the people. I try to make friends with the parents. I try to somehow contact my high schooler's um, friend's parents and, and connect and go, do you know where they're going to be Friday night? They're welcome to come here. You know, trying to build that sense of community, that sense of support. Um, there are other parents out there that, that want that too. They just don't know how to go about it. Um, just because they're in high school doesn't mean we have to step out of their lives. It's actually when we should really be stepping, stepping to the plate more than at any other time. That's great, because that leaves parents um, with some concrete ways to notice when they should at least be concerned, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there is a problem, but it might mean that now is a time when I should lean in a little bit more. I should spend a little bit more time with my child or ask questions or just be around for that person a little bit more often than normal. Yep. Yeah. So um, I'm going to share a little bit about this new program, a fairly new program that you're trained in and implementing um, in our community. And my understanding is this is uh, being implemented in other yep, states all over as well. the state and, mm -hmm. and country. Um, and it's called CRAFT, Community Reinforcement and Family Training. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about that, what, what this training does? Absolutely. This um, was part of a, a project that was across the U.S. Uh, there were three model programs, and they tested them out in different communities to see which had the highest success rate and response rate for parents and families dealing with substance um, use disorder in their proximity. And they found that CRAFT, which reminds everyone of a CRAFT class, but it's <laughs> actually not, um, was the most successful and had a rate of helping um, a loved one seek treatment at a rate of 75 percent versus 10 to 15 percent of other programs. So with that high success rate, 
the Office of Behavioral Health uh, endorsed it, and I was trained along with uh, a number of other people throughout the state. And my partner and I decided to focus this primarily for parents with children any age who are dealing with substance use disorder because we both had uh, young people who struggled with this, and we were able to successfully um, navigate this um, disorder, and we wanted to share our experiences and this amazing program to help parents get through this period um, with success and with a feeling of um, family healing and coming back together as a unit. Uh, What CRAFT helps parents understand or identify about substance use are the external and internal triggers going on for young people and ways in which the parent can contribute to reducing use, but also how parents often contribute to increasing um, a young person's use. And we don't even realize how we do this. It's called enabling. It's it's not the best word because we've, we're all enablers. But it, it helps us to realize what we're doing and how we could change what we're doing and how we can better support our child uh, with communication skills and understanding their triggers. Right. Can you share, when you say enabling, what do you mean by that? So when when I tell my child that I really want them to do well in school this, this semester and I provide them with a quiet place to study, um, the books and, and tools that they need for that, and maybe even help them get hooked up with a school um, volunteer tutor. I'm enabling that process for them to get better grades. When I am dealing with um, a child or, or a spouse whose behavior is, uh, let's say, abusive, verbally abusive, and I keep telling them they can't talk to me that way, but I continue to allow the, the language to go on, and all I do is say, stop talking that way, I'm actually enabling it because I haven't set up a response system that says that behavior has to stop. And if it doesn't stop, there will be a consequence, and that consequence they will have to take or they will have to um, change the behavior. So when we enable, we basically, we aren't saying we allow something. We aren't basically saying that we endorse it or that we support it. But in one way or another, we let it continue. And that is what the definition of enabling is. Mm -hmm. So how would that show up in the world of substances? We were very strong and very um, uh, clear with our children that we did not agree with substance use and that we felt that they were using um, substances such as alcohol and and marijuana and that that wasn't permitted in our home. Yet we didn't set up consequences that told the child, if this continues, you will have to be put in some type of a program or you will have to um, find a different way of getting from our house to your friend's house. Grounding is one thing, taking a phone away. Having a set of consequences that make it really clear 
that they can't continue that behavior. Now, mind you, we both tried taking the phone away and grounding and everything else, and, and we understand that dealing with teens is a very difficult um, age group. It's They can be defiant. They can walk out the door. They can, you know, tell you they're going to do it anyway. So there are a lot of other skills that you can use, and that's what craft teaches us. Um, a lot of other communication skills, but a lot of other reward and consequent skills mm. that really make an impact. Can you share with us some of the things around how good communication is important and you know what kind of pearls of wisdom do you have that you could give parents on how to have that kind of communication with their child that could have an impact? Absolutely. You know, it's not an easy thing. Craft is a 10-week program, and every week we build on the last week, and we have homework assignments. And, and when I say that, you don't have to sit in front of a computer or, or be writing. Um, we have we have activities to practice with your um, loved one, whether it's your child or your, your spouse or your, uh, you know, uh, someone else in your family. So these activities actually build upon each other. Um, one of the most important things, again, is is identifying the external and internal triggers, and we walk you through that so you can figure out why you think your child is using and what's in, what's influencing that internally and then externally. Then we look at communication styles and skills, and we work on seven different types of communication skills. They're very easy. They're very um, quickly learned. But practice is the number one um, goal, and those seven skills can be used in any relationship. We've found people coming back and saying, wow, I, I use those at work, and it, like, changed my relationship with my boss. You know, so it's not just you with your teen. It could be you with your mother. You know, it could be you with your boss. It's, it's very, um, they're real communication sk life skills. Then uh, we talk about rewards. And we build on um, when your teen is using and not using and identifying those times and helping you to identify those times and then building rewards for the times when your child is not using. And sometimes parents have to get up at 6 in the morning and wake their kid up and, and try and reward them when they're sober and it's first thing in the morning before they've gotten high. Um, but we find those times and we talk about and really reinforce what rewards mean and how that impacts the loved one so that the reward means something. Then we talk about withdrawing those rewards. So we're not setting up punishments. We're, we're rewarding good behavior. We're rewarding sober behavior. We're withdrawing those. And they feel it. They totally feel it. And then the long-term goal is talking with them, using those communication skills about how they can get some support and how they can get some help. Treatment in the craft ideology does not mean going to rehab or wilderness. It can. It can also mean just getting therapy. It can mean, you know, going to a good um, support group, going to natural highs, uh, having a therapist once a week to talk to. It could mean being in, in a program. So it just depends really on where you're at, where your child is at, and what the goals of your family are. Mm -hmm. So when you said that you set up these reward systems and then you take them away, um, why do you take the rewards away? You would only point? take the reward away when, when 
the child is not sober. Oh, God. So when the child's using, then you withdraw the reward. Mm -hmm. But you make it very clear why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. So this, again, is all about communication. Right. So it's a a way of having... Rather than using punishment, it's just the removal of the reward itself. I just needed to clarify that. Um, Great. So, you know, when you've seen this happen, how does this... uh, You've worked with several parents. How does this impact their relationship with their child? You know, we've had three full classes, um, 36 parents, and we've also looked at many of the other um, classes that were going on before we started bringing craft here. There are two two underlying goals and really um, outcomes from craft that are highly... Um, successful and rewarding. One is the self-care of the parent. So so often when this is going on, your uh, world is kind of crumbling around you, mm-hmm. and you are losing your social supports, your relationship with your spouse or your significant other, or maybe just your best friend is um, becoming compromised. Your self-care is um, dwindling. So uh, one of our number one goals is rebuilding the strength, inner strength and self-esteem of the parent so that they can take care of themselves mm-hmm. and have um, some self-esteem back, and, and then they can be a better parent. The second thing is to really work on that communication to better the relationship between the parent and the child, and that is really the overall goal Treatment is is something, and again, treatment is whatever the family wants it to be. But treatment is sort of the, the, the big hurrah. But increasing and, and improving that relationship um, between that parent and child is, is the other number one goal. And we see that time and time again, that as a parent starts to change the way they communicate with a child and change the way they look at what's going on, um, with a child who's experiencing um, substance use, we change the dynamics of the relationship. And trust begins to come back in, and a relationship starts to build again. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. It's really amazing. It reminds me of that figure of speech, as you go, they go. You know, that if you can show up and you can focus on healthy habits and healthy mm-hmm. relationships mm-hmm. and um, good communication, then that's what they're learning from right. you and right. you can also bring into the relationship. You know, I think it's so important to remember that there's there there's no one way that's right to parent, just like there's no one way that's right to heal or find recovery. And parents are doing the best they possibly can. I mean, you know, you can look back and go, oh my gosh, I handled that so poorly, I ruined it, and now everything's going wrong. But we always have a chance to to change, and we always have a chance to amend and uh, admit that we were wrong. We're human, and parents are human, and kids get that, you know, Mm -hmm. just like we have to realize that they're going to make big mistakes, and Mm -hmm. that, you know, we can allow that as well, so there's this give and take, and I think we're we're so afraid of um, making mistakes that sometimes we can't admit when we've done it, or we're so afraid that it'll be long-term detrimental that we... Um, we punish ourselves, you know, and we're only human. We're mm-hmm. doing the best we mm-hmm. can. Such a, such a great reminder. 
Um, so we've talked about a lot of things around communication and, and relationship building. What do you think, what do you believe young people really need or crave from the adults in their lives? You know, I think number one, and we hear this all the time and it's said over and over again, so I don't mean to be redundant or cliche, but I think spending time with your kid um, is just so profound that it can't be replaced by anything else. I remember tearing out this little um, saying, and it's on my, my mirror, and I look at it every day still, and it says, the greatest gift I can give is total attention. Um, because, you know, we have our phones going, we have our computers going, we have the TV going, and they do too. And I think if we can spend just a little bit of time, 15 minutes a day, just focusing on them and asking them how things are and not getting distracted, um, it will pay off in the long run. It may not seem to make an impression at all in the beginning, but it does. We, we hear so much about how parents are the biggest influencers in their kids' lives, and, you know, when our teenager is walking away from us and refusing to make eye contact and going, yeah, 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 and I'm not listening or whatever, we don't believe that. But studies show over and over again, especially, you know, the recent um, Healthy Futures um, uh, surveys in the schools that kids are listening and they're hearing what their parents are saying. Um, there was a uh, study done in Sweden, and it's turned into a training called the EFFECT training, and it was brought here to Boulder County, and a number of us were trained in it. And it's about parent communication with kids around substances. And it, it showed statistically and was proven that even if parents are engaging in negative behaviors, if they're telling their children that their expectations are for them not to engage in those negative behaviors it has a very strong effect and that kids will behave more towards what the parents are telling them they expect from them. So I think it's very important we use our words carefully and wisely and with a lot of love and we tell kids um, what we are expecting from them and what we are hoping they will do as far as being uh, making good choices and staying safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I um, I have seen the effect training, and um, one of the things that I think is powerful is it's very short and very clear and to the point. It's not, I mean, we've had people come and do that just for the first few minutes before one of our other parent presentations. Um, cool. So um, it's, it's easy to understand. It comes from uh, uh, evidence and data and just gives a quick overview of some strategies. So. So with everything we've talked about, and, you know, this series is really about opioid prescription drugs and other types of substance use, um, and our listeners range from people who have kids who've never used to people who maybe are dealing with a really significant issue in their life, um, what would you want to leave parents with today? I would leave you with hope. Um, there, there's so much good work out there, and there are so many people who want to help, and I think that we have to retain an element of hope. Um, sometimes it seems pretty, pretty difficult and pretty dire, but uh, we have so many programs, so many people, there's so much support, and we just have to reach for that. We have to continue to talk about the fact that this is going on and we have to destigmatize it and the more the parents are talking about the fact that that 
they are struggling or their kids are struggling, the less we attach shame to it, the less we call it a parenting problem or poor parenting. And the more we look at this as something that we can support each other in and not not attach with shame and stigma. Mm. Mm, thank you. Trina, thank you so much for being here. You've been such a big friend to, to the Parent Engagement Network for many years, and um, it's been fun to watch your growth and, and all the many ways that you've impacted our community and other communities around the world with the, the things that you're doing. Um, if our listeners want to get a hold of you or want to uh, get any information about your, the program we talked about, how can they get that info? Absolutely, Shelley. So we have a website where we... Um, keep our craft classes posted and registration and upcoming events, and that's called reachoutforchange.com. We also, I I can be contacted through Boulder County, and that's at uh, T. Fates, T as in Tom, Fates, F-A-A-T-Z, at bouldercounty.org. And I facilitate the Boulder County Substance Use Advisory Group for the county. There are about 150 stakeholders in that, including community members, people in recovery, law enforcement, diversion, criminal justice, treatment programs, Medicaid-assisted treatment. We welcome anyone who would like to attend or learn more about that. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. We want to thank Radio 1190 for letting us use their space. If you like what you heard today and want to become a sponsor or make a donation, you can find us at penbv.org. That's P-E-N-B-V.org. We hope today's conversation has added to your parenting well. Having a well of resources leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, and you've been listening to Parenting Well Podcast. Until next time, happy parenting.